is, it is a joy to get to, to gather together. Um, my name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work, and we are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And a big part of how we do that is we gather together and we sing. We sing praises to King Jesus, our Redeemer. And we open up God's Word to hear how, how God's story not just informs, but impacts and transforms our story. And so uh, beginning uh, at the beginning of this year in January, over the last four weeks, we've been in this series in the book of Ruth called From Bitter to Blessed. Uh, and in this, you know, hopefully on your way in, you got a, uh, a discipleship guide. Uh, hopefully you have a scripture journal with the book of Ruth. Today, we're going to be concluding that series. And so we're going to be in Ruth chapter four. You can turn there uh, in your Bibles. You can turn to week four in your discipleship uh, uh, guides there. Um, and so I know that every week it's been awesome to get to welcome new people uh, uh, as, as guests and, and hopefully a future family here at Mercy Fellowship. And so um, because this is one of those series that's that's like watching um, you know kind of a mini series on on Netflix or Apple TV or whatever like like you kind of need the preview or, or rather the like the recap of of where we're at and where we're going and so this story began um, at this this horrible time in the history for God's people where it said there was no king in the land everyone did what was right in their own eyes it was a lawless time it was a faithless time it was a time of famine and tragedy and just just national like mores like everybody just like, like nobody was happy like like the whole nation of Israel felt like outside right now but like for a long long time right you know just gray dreary and rough and in that backdrop, with no leadership, no faithfulness, you know, like, is God even there? You know, what's going on? We're in famine. We, we see that there's this, this one family from this town of Bethlehem, which is a city that's it's supposed to be like, like house of provision, house of, of bread. It's supposed to be a place of fullness. And this family says, hey, we've had enough of, of being where God has planted us. Let's see if we can't go find something better in, the, in like the, the, literally the wicked pagan nation of Moab. And so they go to Moab, and, and what the family goes through is a decade of desolation. The husband dies, the two sons um, marry into some Moabite families and are no longer faithful to God's word. They both die, and this widow, Naomi, finds herself out in the fields of Moab with nothing. And that's when she hears that God has visited his people in Bethlehem, that God has, has visited them in such a way that they have provision again, that God has been gracious and merciful to his people even in the midst of their faithlessness. And so she vows to return, and, and when she does, one of the daughter-in-law stays, and the other, at a key decision point, Ruth, goes with her. And not only goes with her, but she says, hey, I'm pledging my allegiance to you, Naomi, like my undying allegiance. I will be kind to you. I'll be a friend to you. I will be family to you. And your God will be my God. I'm not going to follow the, the idols of Moab. I'm going to embrace the God of the Bible. It was an act of repentance. It was an act of conversion to the point where she even says, your nation will be my nation. Your people will be my people. And so they roll into town, and things are, are rough. 
And everybody's like, oh my gosh, Naomi, is that, is that you? We saw you a decade ago. And she's like, hey, I'm, I'm so bitter. My name Naomi means sweet, but God has dealt bitterly with me, so you should call me Mara, which means bitter. And she's hopeless. She's in despair. And, and we said that, hey, sometimes when, when you've suffered great loss, when you've suffered tragedy, it is so hard to see the path ahead because of the pain. And it's so, so difficult to see what you have when all you can focus on is what you've lost. And that was chapter one. And so then chapter two uh, rolls in. It's, it's, it's the time of harvest. Like, like, like there's actually some good things happening in the community. And where Naomi's still kind of stuck at home, she's just, she's just kind of in that place that we get sometimes where we're paralyzed in our pain. Ruth says, no, no, I, I'm going to go be proactive Hey, Naomi, I heard that you've got family here. Like, didn't we come back here because there's family that could support us? I'm going to go into the field of a guy named Boaz who's, who's single and wealthy, okay? And she's like, and I'm going to work hard. And, and she goes and gleans in the field, which is like an Old Testament kind of work for welfare program that the nation of Israel had. And while she's in that field, we just over and over and over again hear about these coincidences, like she just so happened to be in that field. Like Boaz just so happened to show up to the field that day. Boaz just so happened to notice her. And in all those coincidences, we said, no, no, no. We don't worship a God of coincidence. We worship the God of providence. That it's God's hand that was working even in those circumstances to, to move them from a place of absolute emptiness and tragedy to kind of, kind of daily bread sustenance. That part of our paths of healing and wholeness from loss and from tragedy and from difficulty is God's daily provision to us. And so she works hard. They kind of have their, their first date, Ruth and Boaz do. And, and you know, kind of the, the meet cute there, right? It's the romantic comedy. Like, okay, we, we know that these two are probably going to end up together at the end. But like, let's still watch it for 90 minutes and see like what the journey looks like. Okay? And so she comes home after that first day of work, and Naomi has gone from like, God hates me, God's done nothing for me, he's awful, to like, hold up, you came back with like 80 pounds of barley? This is phenomenal. What happened? Oh, I met Boaz, who's one of our, our relatives. It's, it's, it's actually somebody who could take responsibility for us as a family in the way that that society was arranged. And so Naomi, we see her path of healing going from bitterness towards God to praising God and what he's done to provide for them in that small way. And so um, chapter 2 concludes, and, and it says that, that she kept working on during the time of harvest. So maybe six, eight weeks go by, and then we get to chapter 3, uh, and, and it's like, whoa, harvest is done. It's time for the harvest party, like, like the window of opportunity for God to do something pretty big and great in their lives seems to be closing, and now it's not Ruth being proactive, it's Naomi, after several weeks of God's daily provision, saying, oh, I don't want to just be focused on what I need. Ruth, what do you need? Ruth, you're a young widow. I want to see you remarried. I want to see you with a chance for a legacy. I want to see you in a place of rest, uh, of security, of provision and protection. You should go to Boaz, no longer dressed in the clothes of a widow, signifying grief, but you should go with, with kind of that relationship status switched over to available. 
And so she's like, hey, get ready, go to the party. And at the end of the party, like, like just reveal yourself to him and, and like, like just kind of see what happens. And we we're like, hey, that's kind of weird. It is kind of weird. Don't do that. But it worked for Ruth and Naomi, okay? And so it happens. And she meets Boaz late that night. And um, he said he's eaten and drank and he's merry. Uh, and he's on his big, giant, giant heaping pile of, of barley and, and all that stuff, kind of protecting that at the, at the end. And, and, he, and she says, hey, not like, not like let's hook up. She's like, you are a redeemer. You're one who could legally marry me, who could then reestablish the family line uh, that Naomi had through her sons. Um, you could provide and protect for us. Like, you've been so good and kind to us to let us glean and work in your fields. But no, we, we want to have like, like some more eternal, if you will, security, some, some long-lasting provision and flourishing. And so um, he's like, yes, this is what I've wanted. Like, since I first saw you in the field, like, like I'm here for it. He's like, I'm old, I'm single. Like, like I, yes, I would like to make this work. But like any good romantic comedy, there's a catch. And he says, hey, um, there's actually somebody who legally has the standing to redeem Naomi's property, to redeem you as a wife. Uh, and I can't step into that role unless that person has vacated kind of their, their first rights of refusal. And so she goes home with a ton of provision. Um, Naomi's like, hey, how'd it work out? And she's like, he gave me all this barley, but we'll just kind of see besides that. And, and, and it was amazing, again, to see Naomi's journey from bitterness to hopelessness to the end of chapter three, Naomi says, no, don't you worry. He will not relent until he has redeemed us. Like she has just such great confidence. That, and that confidence gets built when we experience God's kindness to us over and over and over again. It builds boldness. It builds courage. And so that leads us here to Ruth chapter 4. That's the long uh, intro where the series, it's been about how, how God is kind to us on our paths of healing and wholeness. That We don't know what our paths of healing and restoration are, are look like, but we do know that we are called to steps of faithfulness. Maybe even risk at times. And just by way of preface, like sometimes... Sometimes, like, we're about to see how this story resolves in the next, you know, 20 minutes or so here. But for most of us in our stories, we don't get to see, always see the resolve. But all of us can be confident that God is kind and good to us, particularly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that God is working all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so maybe you're in a dark or challenging chapter right now. But that doesn't mean that's how the story has to end. So let's turn to Ruth chapter 4, broken this up into, I believe, three sections. I'm going to start at verses 1 through 6. This is the morning after the great harvest party. All right. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of who Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city, and he said, sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, 
by it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. And if, but if you will not, tell me that I may know that there's no one besides you to redeem it. And I have come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Okay, there's a lot going on here. Um, there's some kind of history and cultural stuff we need to go uh, through a little bit, but, but here's what's going on. Boaz um, has woken up, right, it's the morning after, and just as he promised Ruth at the end of chapter 3, like, he will not relent until, uh, like, like, kind of the deal is done, if you will, for their redemption. And so he goes to the city gate, and, and we don't necessarily have an equivalent, but the city gate in those days, and in towns like that, was kind of like the town square, but it also served, like, as a city council, as a place you could find justice. It's like, like the courthouse, where kind of all the deals uh, and legal exchange were made and all that stuff. And so, so Boaz goes to the gate early in the morning and man, he is like a spider in a web. He's like, I'm just going to wait here. And at some point we're going to see that, that guy, the, the redeemer, the, the relative who probably has already known that Naomi's back, probably already knows about Ruth, who's supposedly their closest relative in Bethlehem. And maybe he's commuting to the fields, but we don't know. But as he walks by the gate, Boaz is like, whoa, whoa, hold up, buddy. Hey, man, man, come on over here. Right, like, like sometimes you're out at a festival or an event and, and somebody's in like a, a branded t-shirt from some company. They're like, hey, hey, come on over here. Come on over here. Like, don't do it. It's a trap. Like, right, they're trying to give you a free t-shirt and they signed you up for a credit card. I know because that was my job in college. Okay, that, that was, that's literally what I did. Um, and so, not in the notes. So he, he brings them over. And now... He's at the city gate, and, and while he sits down, he says, hey, by the way, just a second, hold up. Hey, elders of the town, come on over. He gets 10 guys to show up. So now what's happened is you're on your way to work, and, and you, get, you find yourself in real estate court. Like, that's what's going on. And he's like, man, do I have a deal for you. Like, Naomi, our relative, she's got some land. Now, hold up. We've been with Ruth and Naomi for three chapters. We didn't hear about no land, right? We heard that they had nothing. They were forsaken. There's no hope. God's no good. All these things. And, 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 hold on. We've said this every week. You are often more blessed than you know. And there's always more hope than we think that there is. Naomi actually had a, a plot of land. Okay. So he's saying, hey, you can buy the land and, and, and then it, it'll be yours. Like, like you're, you're her redeemer. Like, like, purchase the land. You get the first right of redemption. And, and so, um, and, then, and then, hey, like, this is an awesome investment opportunity. Naomi, like, she's going to sell her late husband's land. She's going to cash out her 401k. Uh, and then she's going to retire off of that kind of deal. And this seems like it could be a good deal. Only how, I mean, I'm not going to get into all the real estate stuff because I'm not a realtor, but, but the, the Old Testament law uh, was like every seven years, there was this year of jubilee. And what that meant was, is that any debts that had been incurred, any land that had been leased was automatically returned back to their original owner. 
that all debts were forgiven, all interest was, was paid off kind of deal. And so for, for what he's talking about, it wasn't like a purchase, it was more like a land lease. And so for that guy, he's thinking, okay, wait, if, if Naomi's old and she dies and she has no relatives, no other heirs, then rather than that lease kind of going back to Naomi or to her heirs or to her family, this guy would get to keep it in perpetuity. Like this guy would get to, to build up his land holdings. He'd get to build up his earnings. He'd get to build up his legacy. And so he's thinking, yes, this is a great deal. I totally want to buy the land. Really hoping that Naomi, you know, maybe doesn't make it past winter, you know, because then it's all mine, mine forever. Only there's a catch. Right? Anytime a deal sounds too good to be true, like read the fine print. And that's what, that's what Boaz does. Boaz is like, well, hold up. Um, there's some fine print. Um, in addition to getting the land, you, my friend, also get Ruth the Moabite. And, and I love how, how like Boaz calls her that because that was a pejorative in their day, to be a Moabite. You are opposed to God, his people, his words, like, like you are an outcast, you're, you're a different race, different religion, different culture, uh-uh, no good. And so he's saying, you, you get to marry Ruth the Moabite, which is not gonna really help your standing in town. Oh, and by the way, um, yeah, here's this deal. Her husband's dead, so um, if you guys have kids, um, uh, uh, under like weird kind of, uh, I said wait, Old Testament law, um, they're actually under his name. And, and your role is to redeem and restore that broken family line that because of death and because of disease and because of, uh, of, uh, of all the tragedy that's happened has ended, you're gonna have to restore that. And so by the way then, what that means is when you die or when the land's ready to pass off, it'll actually pass off to this kid and to his legacy and not yours. And so, man, Boaz is so shrewd, he's basically putting in a poison pill in the deal. And, man, the, the guy who was so excited about this deal just a few minutes ago, um, when it's like, hey, man, I'll, 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 do, I'll take one for the team, I'll, I'll serve the family, I'll, I'll redeem, when, when it was going to benefit him, when it's going to increase his kingdom, when it's going to increase his legacy, he's ready to to step up, but he's not willing to sacrifice if it's not going to personally benefit him. And so, if he declines the land and Ruth, it will, or rather, if he redeems the, the land and Ruth, it will ruin his inheritance. It will ruin, if you will, his name. He's consumed with his legacy. I don't know how often that happens for us. I don't know how often we think legacy. I think right now we're just so like day-to-day -day focused. But what I can say is if we become hyper-focused on something like our legacy or what's our mark in the world, that God has a way of just humbling us. And so if you're worried about your legacy, I think actually what we're called to do is worry about being faithful and then let God be the one who brings fruitfulness into our lives. Where is God calling you to be faithful? How is he calling you to love and lead your family? How is he calling you to, to serve in your church or in your community? Like, where, where is he just calling you to take that bold next step? And so, this guy who was so concerned with, with his name living on, what's, what's ironic is, right, read the text. We don't even, don't even know his name. 
It's a couple thousand years later. We just know he's the guy who had the greatest responsibility and didn't follow through because he was being selfish. No legacy. He is unnamed. Like I said, God has a way of humbling us. But we do know Boaz. And why do we know Boaz? Well, we know Boaz because Boaz stands up for Ruth and Naomi at the gate. That Boaz is a shadow, and I say a shadow, an imperfect shadow of Jesus Christ, our perfect high priest, our perfect redeemer. He, like, like, here's what's amazing already, just in his act of going to the gate alone is, is, is an act of great service. Naomi, as a, as a poor widow with no leverage, doesn't have to go to the elders of the town and try to plead her case. Ruth the Moabite, with like little to no legal standing in that society, doesn't have to go and try to seek justice. No, Boaz steps up. Boaz is their advocate. He is their high priest, if you will, standing in the gap between them being helpless and needy uh, and, and needing fullness and healing and their restoration. He lives that out in engaging with the elders, in stepping up and being their advocate in a huge way. And, and he kind of, like I said, he's, he's a shadow of what we see of Jesus in the New Testament. Hebrews 9, 11 and 12 says it this way. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, meaning one who bridges the gap between us and God, for the good of things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, it's talking about where God dwells, he's entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of blood of goats, okay, not that old, bloody, sacrificial system of the Old Testament and calves, but by means of what? His own blood. He laid it on the line. He paid the cost of your redemption, of our sin, and thus securing an eternal redemption. See, this other guy who was worried about his life and his legacy, Boaz would have to give up just as much. Boaz, like he said, hey, this guy's your, he's the only redeemer there is. No, no, this guy's not the redeemer, Boaz is. For you and I, there's only one name under heaven and earth in which we can be redeemed, and that is the name of Christ Jesus. He is our only redeemer. He is our only high priest. He is the only one that can bridge that gap between us and our sin, us and our spiritual poverty, us in our neediness, and God in his perfection, God in his holiness, God in his justice and mercy and grace. He stands there in the gap and he says, I will redeem you. I will redeem you. I will redeem you. You now have eternal security in Christ Jesus. That you don't have to spiritually glean day by day just hoping to get some scraps, but instead you have protection and provision spiritually for now and for eternity. And so I think what happens is some of us believe that we either don't need redemption, we've, we, we got it, we're fine, we're gonna be okay. And we don't fully recognize our spiritual condition and our need for God. And some of us, though, 
We believe that either we've sinned so much or we've been sinned against or we've been so abused or we've been so broken that we are beyond redemption. Or maybe we've done things in our past that we just frankly aren't proud of that have given us and caused us shame. And I want you to know that in Christ Jesus, your past does not have a claim on you. Your past does not have a claim on you. When your faith and trust is in Jesus, he has paid for the sins of your past, he's redeemed you in the present, and he promises your restoration in the future. That you are no longer outcast, Moabite, widow, hopeless, but you are in the family. You are protected, you are secure, you are provided for by the grace and mercy of God. See, I think some of us think that maybe, you know, like we read a story like Ruth and, and, and Boaz and all that stuff. And we're like, well, Boaz, you know, he probably wanted to redeem her. Like she was single, he was single. Like, you know, there's a whole deal. Like he likes her character, she likes his character. Like, like I mean, there was definitely some chemistry there. Um, and, and we think that we've got to be appealing or pleasing to God in some way for him to redeem us. And I just want us to know, I want you to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't that you are worthy enough to be redeemed or you work really, really hard for a time of harvest and maybe at the end he'll redeem you. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is despite our faithlessness, despite our brokenness, in our spiritual poverty, in our sin, while we were, the Bible says, children of wrath, God was rich in mercy to us and is kind to us. We see this in Romans chapter eight, verses six through nine. It says this, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. Who is that? Me, you, us, all of us in our sin. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, while we were at our spiritual worst, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified, meaning right standing with God by his blood, by his sacrifice on the cross, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We are not going to be exiles anymore. We're not going to be rebels anymore. We're not going to be spiritual orphans anymore or spiritual widows. We're not without legacy or inheritance. We are citizens. We are sons of da and daughters. We are members of the kingdom. We are ambassadors of the kingdom. We have an inheritance for eternity. Where, where this other redeemer was so consumed with not losing his inheritance, God in his spiritual riches gave us everything in Christ Jesus so that you and I could enjoy an inheritance of glory and grace that none of us have done anything to deserve or earn. It's just his mercy and grace to us. And so despite our brokenness, despite our sin, despite our shame, he redeems us. And that is why the gospel is such good news for us. That we have hope and redemption, not just to be cleared of our legal debt of sin, to not be brought back to zero or brought back to neutral, and then you kind of figure it out from there. 
But instead, in our spiritual poverty, in our spiritual need, even in our spiritual death, he brings new life and he brings restoration and fullness and abundant life. Not neutral and wandering, but peace and wholeness and brought back home. All right, next verses. Let's keep going. Verses 7 through 13, okay? The, um says this. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech, all that belong to Kilion and Malon, that's the sons, and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthy in um, Ephraim and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring uh, that the Lord will give to you by this young woman. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. So we said that you know, he's kind of convened this real estate court. It was actually important that he brought in 10 witnesses because you could do a real estate transaction with just a few witnesses, but 10 witnesses were required for a wedding. And so Boaz at the beginning, man, he, he knew. He knew the redemption was certain. He was preparing for a wedding even before it was believed that it was going to happen. And so... Boaz and the Redeemer, they, they seal the deal with this kind of old school Hebrew flip-flop exchange that we read in those first couple verses. That's a custom outlined in Deuteronomy uh, 25. And, and yet uh, the custom was actually that, that if you failed to redeem your family, there was this weird sandal thing, but also the widow, in this case it would have been Naomi, gets to walk up and spit in your face. Yeah, it was like, hey, buddy, you didn't do what you were called to love, lead, and care for your family, shame on you. It was intense. In some regards, this guy's getting off pretty easy. He just has to do the sandal thing. And so we've said for a couple weeks now, like, like hey, church, we need, we need to see more men step up and be Boazes, ready to take responsibility, ready to, to love and lead with kindness and clarity and boldness and humility. And so... As we said, we don't hear from this guy again. He fades back into obscurity. It's all about Boaz now, right? He, he buys it all. He redeems it all. He's like, hey, I want the land. Uh, I'm going to take care of Naomi. I'm going to marry Ruth, the Moabite. And this is what's amazing. In front of basically the town council, this, this mighty man of valor, that's how uh, Boaz is described in earlier chapters. This man of high standing in the city wants the whole city to know that Ruth, the Moabite outcast, it's part of my family now. 
You treat her like she's part of my family. She's not an outcast. She's not a foreigner. She's not a pagan. She's part of the people of God. He shamelessly identifies with her in her being an outsider. He shamelessly identifies with Naomi as a widow who's someone who's suffered great loss. And in this, we see again this shadow of Jesus Christ who, who sees us in our brokenness and says, they're mine. They're in my family now. They're on my team now. Who sees us in our loss and our grief and says, I will be the one that provides for you fullness and peace and life. And so there's all these witnesses. They all see what's, what's going on. And, and what's amazing, right, right this whole, the whole town, they saw Naomi and Ruth roll in about six or eight weeks ago. And, and Ruth or Naomi was like, we're empty. We got nothing. God hates me. I'm bitter. And, and amazingly, the town of Bethlehem got to see a story of death, of grief, of loss, be turned into one of redemption, one of restoration. They got to see hope realized. We see God providing hope in the marriage of this foreigner into the family and the people of God. And, and, and the town embraces her. They say, hey, your wife, Ruth the Moabite, let her be like Rachel and Leah. That was, that, that was Israelite royalty going generations back. Let your family line, he says, be like the house of Perez uh, and Tamar. And you, you read that story. You can look at that in Genesis 38 if you want to. It was just another time of God using some pretty wild circumstances to make sure his promises were kept and the lineage of his royal family was kept. And they're saying, let that be what happens here. He provides great hope that our God is a God of redemption. He has the power to redeem us in our bitterness, in our brokenness. Anytime we're an outcast, he can bring us into fellowship with him through our faith in Jesus. And that's where we see Ruth and Boaz is a picture of the gospel. Ruth showed up with nothing. Naomi showed up with nothing. You and I show up to God with nothing but our sin and our need for a savior. And he grants us redemption. He grants us life. In eternity, he grants us forgiveness for our sins. And he promises his presence. And he promises us an eternity in glory. Next verse is we gotta keep things going here. 14 through 17. Then the women, this is of the town, said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, who's not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. 
Obed's name means uh, gift of God, I believe. And so Ruth and Boaz, they, they have a son. And just as kind of the story arc of this book of Ruth uh, began nationally, focused in on Naomi and then eventually Ruth. We've had, we had the Ruth and, and Boaz romance. Now we're focusing back on Naomi, on how God has restored her, on how the city has said to her, hey, isn't it amazing? Not, not just you have a son, because I mean, in that culture, right, right sons were everything. Right, they're saying, no, Ruth, this, this woman who's been loyal to you, who's been kind to you, who's been a friend to you, she's more worthy to you and more with you than seven sons are. And, and look, she's had a son. That he's going to be the one who cares for his grandmother in her old age. That where she was hopeless coming back into town, wondering if anybody would see her or notice her or care for her or, or be with her in her latter days. Like, no, no, you have a family and a lineage now that's going to care for you. She's a recognized part of the family. And so Naomi's story doesn't end with retirement on a beach. It ends with her serving her grandson. We see in verse 17, she's actually the great-great-grandmother of King David. Naomi and her path of healing and her path of wholeness in being in a place of bitterness, she has more than hope for the future. She actually gets to have her hope realized. Like, two things can be true. She's suffered great loss in losing her husband. She's suffered in her son's being gone. And now, we see now probably almost a year after her return, right? She's at a place of healing and joy. That God led her through the valley of the shadow of death. But he was kind to her. That the darkest and worst parts of our stories do not have to be the ones that define our stories. That no matter how much loss you've experienced or however much pain you're going through right now or how hopeless things seem in our country or in your marriage or in your relationships or whatever's going on, like, like if you think it's a bad time, then it means the story's not over. That God is doing a work. I mean, God worked through a famine. God worked through loss and death and in doing so still brought life and joy for Naomi, he has not forgotten her. He has not forgotten you. And so there's hope for us in Jesus Christ. That no matter wherever you're at, no matter how bad things are, like, just, you don't have to remain here. You're not stuck. There is a path forward. There is a path of healing. There is a path of wholeness. And it begins with the humility to say, hey, I need a redeemer too. I, my problems, my soul, my brokenness, I, my efforts to fix it ain't working. I can't make food come out of a field. I can't change the geopolitical climate. God, I need you to feed my soul. God, I need you to forgive me of my sin. God, I need you to be able to give me humility to confess sin to others, to ask for forgiveness where I've wronged others. God, I, I, I need hope because it just seems dark and all I see is the pain here. Like, God, I need to be reminded that the story ends differently than how it is today. That, that whatever you're going through today, this is not it. 
As long as there's breath, there's hope. We trust in the goodness and mercy of God that whatever you need deliverance from, whatever you need healing for, that Jesus acts as our redeemer and restorer. And not just like, I mean, hey, it's not always going to be economic. It's not always going to be health and wealth, right? It doesn't mean everything's going to go awesome for you all the time. But it does mean God wants to meet you in your valleys and provide for you and give you hope to fill you with joy that leads you to love and serve others. I mean, look at where Naomi's at. She was at a place where she couldn't even get out of the house to go glean. And by God's kindness and restoration to her, it leads her to joyfully serve her family in a way that serves them and brings them joy and brings her joy as well. And so God has been good to us so that we can love and serve and be kind to others. Ruth, she gave herself in poverty to serve Naomi. Boaz gave himself in wealth to serve Ruth. Ruth is now restored and she is giving the years of her life to Obed. And that leads us to these last verses in Ruth as we begin to close. The book of Ruth actually ends drawing us back out from, from the family from the individual, from that town of Bethlehem, back to the 20,000-foot level of what's going on in the history of God's people. Last few verses as we close. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Herzon. Herzon fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered, there it is, Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. What does that mean? A book that began in the time of the judges where there's no king and, and everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, it's lawless and faithless, ends with a family renewed and restored that ultimately leads to the birth of Israel's greatest Old Testament king. That that the restoration you want, that the great changes in God's people or even in our nation or whatever else is going on, we might not get to see in our day. And we need to be okay with that. We need to be okay that God is using our stories even in times of famine, in times of loss, in times of grief, to bring about healing and restoration for us, yes, for our families, but also for His people. And so, I mean, all of this is foreshadowing that there's a day where the king is coming. And you can read on in the Bible and you can read about King David and like, you know, he did some bad things. Like we wouldn't let him serve in our kids' ministry, okay? Right? I don't think I let him serve in security either, okay? Like, but, but it says that it was, he was a man after God's own heart. And, and he was a shadow, again, a shadow of the perfect king that shows up in Jesus. That Matthew chapter 1 actually lays out the same, this, this same genealogy saying, look at all the crazy ways that God used broken people, lost people, people from outside of the family, outside of the nation, all to weave in the genealogy of our Savior King Jesus 
who's our Redeemer, who's our Savior, our King, our God. And so I want you to know that our small stories, your small stories, can be part of a bigger story of God's redemption and revival for His people. I mean, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, so like we pray for, and I, I want to see things like revival. I want to see more people get baptized. I want to see more marriages get restored. I want to see more generational legacies of fathers and mothers loving and discipling their kids in the ways of Jesus. I want to see people who didn't love Jesus before, who are outsiders, be brought in as insiders when they repent of sin and trust Jesus and pledge their allegiance to him. And so, like, we want to see big changes, right? You want, you want to see flourishing here in western Washington? I do. Heck, I'd just like to see the sun at some point would be nice, okay? You want to see better things in our country? You should. You want to see better things around the world? And you should. Then let's let our small stories of God's faithfulness to us, even in our faithlessness, propel us to faithfulness, to obedience, to love and kindness to one another in ways that then shape the trajectory of communities and families for generations. In some regards, our stories are smaller than we think they are, but look at this one little family and the eternal impact they had because of God's kindness to them and their response to God's kindness and grace with faith and obedience in him. We have an opportunity to change the trajectory of our legacies. And so, so little of what we see happens in just one lifetime. It's nearly impossible to see how it's all going to play out, but we can know that God's plan ends with King Jesus seated on a throne and all of God's people together worshiping him, praising him for his glory responding to God's goodness and kindness with joy and worship. And so regardless of how bad you've fallen, regardless of what pain or suffering you've gone through, or how bad your circumstances are, there is hope, healing, and forgiveness available. That healing is possible. Forgiveness is possible. Satisfaction is possible when our faith and trust is in Jesus alone. And so... You might think that your story seems unfinished or is in a place of a crossroads or is a place that just seems unresolved. Just know that your story is actually not unfinished. In fact, it's not even unwritten. But when your faith and trust is in Jesus, your name, it says, is written in the book of life. So when your faith is in Jesus... Even in the valleys, yes, in the times of joy and plenty, he's present with us and he promises us eternity and glory with him when we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.